0: everyone, and welcome to another episode of Curator's Choice. I'm your host, Ayla Anderson, and kicking off November, we're going to be doing another three-part series. And this is going to be done at the American Civil War Museum in Richmond, Virginia. And for today, we're going to be talking with Christopher Graham, who is the curator of exhibits at the American Civil War Museum, and he's going to be talking to us about a couple of things. So, what's really amazing when you go to this museum is the location of it is on the historic Tredegar Iron Works. And so, there's a lot of old brick buildings from Tredegar. And what they've done is they've really masterfully integrated those old brick parts of Tredegar into the museum. So, they've preserved it all and then they've built their museum around it so as you walk inside you have to walk under some of the old archways for the entrances to the Tredegar buildings and then you come inside and there's all these preserved pieces of brick that are in the lobby area and they've done a really cool job so Christopher tells us all about what Tredegar was with how important the ironworks were especially after 1861 when Virginia seceded from the Union so then these confederate states, they had a couple of really big hubs, but Richmond, Virginia was a huge industrial hub. So we're going to be talking about how Richmond was important during that area, why Tredegar Works was important. And then we're also going to be talking more about the history of the Civil War. For the items slash that we're going to be covering, Chris tells us all about a map that is on a sheet It is the map of Northern Virginia at the time of the Battle of First Manassas in July 1861. So he tells us all about this really detailed map of the battle. He tells us who signed it in authenticity, P.T. Beauregard. And then we go on to talk about Greenback America, which is an exhibit that they have that talks all about greenbacks, which now I know is referring to our American green dollars. So we've got a lot in store. And then, like I said, this is just the first in a three-part series. If you're wanting to see any pictures of today's episode, just go to CuratorsChoicePodcast.com. You can check it out on Facebook and Instagram, of course. And I am unveiling my Patreon page. So if you become a patron, which would be fantastic if you would like to offer some support to this podcast, then you can do so through the Patreon, and if you want to do that, then you'll have early access to the episode that would be coming out on the third Tuesday of the month. So check that out if you're interested, and let's go ahead and hear all about the American Civil War from Chris.
1: Well, I came here in 2016 as part of a grant-funded project that was uh, funded by the Andrew Mellon Foundation, and. Okay. The idea there was to create two temporary exhibits based on the most recent scholarship on the American Civil War. And so those are the t- those were the two exhibits that uh, w- that we have looked at, uh, Greenback America and Certain Ambitions, are both based on uh, dissertations completed in the last four to five years at the University of Virginia.
2: Oh, that's really cool. So, so you yeah. guys took the scholarships, when, when you're saying you did it with a scholarship, is that a scholarship... To yeah. make the exhibits, or was it a scholarship that created that able enough that allowed them <laughs> to make those dissertations?
1: Uh, no, it was uh, the the exhibit projects were based on the dissertations.
2: That is really cool. And
1: and part of the part of the grant funding was to be able to hire the uh, the scholars um, in the two cases, so the authors of the d- dissertations, to uh, work with the museum for the full year to to develop the projects.
2: That sounds amazing. So, I haven't it, it I, I haven't it. come across a, a museum that had those kinds of exhibits that I knew of.
1: <laughs> we 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 try it's important to us at the Civil War Museum to make sure that we root everything we do in in the newest and best scholarship on the American Civil War because uh, the, the ju- just the layers of what people know Uh, what people have learned, how people have grown knowing this particular topic, unlike any other topic in American history, is complex and complicated. And and so we really make sure that, kind of, we tell stories based on what's in the newest and best scholarship. That's obviously
2: the smartest way to do it too. That's really, really (laughs) awesome. So we're at the Historic Tredegar Steelworks.
1: Historic Tredegar or it was known then as Tredegar Iron Ironworks.
2: Okay, and that's basically like this complex of buildings that you guys have around you that's all brick. You, yes. you guys have preserved quite a bit of it, mm-hmm. and it's integrated into the museum's design.
1: Right, the uh, the new museum that opened in 2000, 2018?
2: I just had it yeah, too. 18,
1: yeah, it opened in 18.
2: Okay, okay, here we go. It was 2019, 2019. The, okay. the plans to build our new facility, which opened in May of 2019.
1: Okay all right fair
2: so you guys opened the new one in 2019 and that is this building
1: that's the building we're in now yeah okay um and this the building we're in now was built for this purpose and so
2: and what was so significant about the tredegar ironworks
1: uh tredegar ironworks was one of the leading ironworks in the slave states prior to the civil war uh certainly there are a number of small ironworks around the the uh the slave states but tredegar was one of the largest and it was owned by a man named Joseph Reed Anderson, a West Point graduate who turned to iron manufacturing in the antebellum period. And he employed immigrants from Wales and England and Ireland, and he employed enslaved people as well. In fact, at Trediger was Tredegar was one of the pioneer locations for kind of experimenting with uh, factory, industrial slavery, factory based slavery. Okay. And, and certainly many forward looking uh, pro-slavery Americans were trying to figure out ways for slavery to work beyond agriculture. Where else would it work? Could it work in factories? Could it work in mines? Could it work in on railroads and um, railroad construction? and. Anderson was one of the pioneers in trying to figure out and prove that, yes, slavery can work in industrial settings Great. as well. And uh, he manufactured uh, railroad equipment, uh, everything from the stringers to the to the spikes to boilers and parts for steam engines, whether it's in uh, for railroads or for other kind of steam other, other steam engine needs, I don't know. What, mm-hmm. How would you describe, mm-hmm. <laughs> describe that? And uh, he, I think he, en- I don't know the details all that well, but I think he may have engaged in some arm manufacturing, but certainly when Virginia seceded from the Union in April of 1861, the Confederate States was eager to uh, have Virginia's resources, not only in manpower and agricultural production and kind of just ge- the geographic scope of extending the Confederate States to the Mason-Dixon line. But also uh, one, of the, one of the features of getting Virginia in the Confederate States was that Joseph Reed Anderson's Tredegar Iron Works was here. And Anderson turned toward uh, the production of particularly cannons and artillery ammunition for the Confederate States during the war. He continued making railroad parts he also made other iron products for military and naval service. And so mm-hmm. the iron plating for the CSS Virginia, formerly known as the USS Merrimack, uh, was produced here at Trudiger Ironworks. Wow. And uh, we have some of the test plates that he made on in several of our exhibits right now. Oh, very <laughs> so,
2: cool. Um,
1: that are. Th- those were made here as well. So it was and I mean
2: a really 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 important industrial area and so very important when Confederacy was looking for places. It was like we <laughs> we would like to scoop you up and bring you with us.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, yes.
2: Very important in their effort. Yep. So that kind of you know, that history, like you were saying earlier, you know, mm. it's, it's it's a complicated history, but that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to come here is because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's really, really relevant today, obviously, <laughs> what you guys are doing here, trying to, to make that education easy and easily accessible to everyone.
1: Yeah, So and now that we're thinking about it, I'm going to riff a little bit. Now that we're thinking about it. Riff, um, riff, um, riff just away. Th- th- this whole James River waterfront that the Tredegar Ironworks was a part of um, stretched for about a mile between just upriver from here down to Rockets Landing, where uh, some naval, store, naval industries were, were located uh, really kind of en- encapsulated uh, what many for them forward-looking pro-slavery uh, nationalists and internationalists thought the Confederacy, Confederate states could be. And so we've got industry, we've got international trade, we've got industrial slavery, and uh, we've got the slave trade itself, which is also part of the waterfront that's down here and these are, these are all slavery-based or slavery-associated enterprises that the Confederate states and kind of pro-slavery nationalists prior to the war and Confederate states during the war imagined that kind of what they were gonna to contribute to, to uh, the development of their nation, but the development of the, the nation's place in, in global commerce mm-hmm. and uh, the community of nations. and. It kind of, uh, it's helpful to see the Confederate vision from here and to to get past the idea that it's simply something that uh, happened in the countryside, happened on plantations, happened on farms, um, and was a soon-to-be relic of uh, modern America Mm -hmm. uh, because these Confederates fully had a vision for how slavery would continue to be updated and be a modern practice um, in American life in the future. And we also see in, on the waterfront, uh, the places where black people worked to assault, undermine and attack slavery and chiefly by escape, by Mm -hmm. resistance, Mm -hmm. um, by ways that enslaved factory workers pushed back against their white overseers and the ways that that Black people used the commerce and shipping out of the Richmond waterfront to facilitate their own self-emancipation, their own escape from slavery into free states and yeah. the safety of free states, whether it's uh, Philadelphia or Canada. There are a number of documented cases from Henry Box Brown, who worked in a uh, worked in a tobacco factory here in Richmond on the waterfront and literally mailed himself to Philadelphia in a box. Oh, So I
2: did hear uh, about this story yes. when, I was, yeah, when yeah. I was young and <laughs> in, the, in the history books, I remember that. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that that was Richmond though. Yeah,
1: yeah, that is, and if you walk down the canal walk, uh, after, after a while, after you get past 14th Street, you'll see a little uh, memorial statue to that. It's kind of a representation of a, a wooden crate of the size that he mailed himself in. Wow. Um, and certainly any number of people that stowed away on uh, ships that left uh, Rockets Landing and Chakra Bottom um, for northern ports. Uh, there are several uh, people who, who left Richmond and escaped slavery that way, who uh, landed in Philadelphia and reported their stories to William Still, uh, who collected testimony of people escaping from slavery and published it as the Underground Railroad. It's a lot of great first-person testimony of people uh, their experiences in slavery and their ways that they had escaped from it. And he followed up with a lot of people as well and tracked their lives in freedom a bit with continuing correspondence and so which I feel uh, like
2: is a little bit more lacking in history, right? Like I feel like we have a lot of the stories of when they were enslaved, but the freedom part kind of gets left out.
1: Sure. Sure. Well, yeah. at least from yeah, 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 from, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. from what
2: I've heard. I haven't heard a lot of the, right, right, the right. after-freedom stories. <laughs> we did go up to Niagara Falls, and we yes. visited the Underground Railroad Heritage mm-hmm. Center. And that was kind of where we heard some of those stories as mm-hmm. well, like the post-freedom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But
1: Yeah. I've used uh, two individuals, escaped from the waterfront, went through, uh, met with William Still, and then proceeded because it was after the Fugitive Slave Act. So uh, proceeded through the Cataract House into Canada from there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> from there, yeah, yeah. And, the, and their struggles to to uh, kind of figure out who they were and how they were going to be in a state of freedom. Mm-hmm. And so all those all those stories kind of in some way or another kind of pass through the, the this, this waterfront in, in Richmond.
2: Well, in this waterfront area, obviously, super important for a lot of the reasons that we've talked about. Um, and then the exhibits that you have here at the museum directly relay that. Mm-hmm. but. Kind of in the, in the midst of all of this fighting, there was one particular item that you showed us that kind of had this this huge map area, mm-hmm. and it was funny because you asked if, uh, if we were from around here because you were you know casually pointing out some of the places, <laughs> I don't I didn't know any of it, mm-hmm. <laughs> but right. I, I figured it out. I saw Alexandria, and I did live in Alexandria before, uh, so okay. I'm there. Um, but tell us a little bit about what this is.
1: Okay, so uh, what we're looking at is what the, the museum calls a bed sheet, um, and it may or may not be a bed sheet. At least it's a a large square piece of cotton sheeting. And on it is uh, drawn in pencil, and it's a little bit faded, but it's everything's still visible on it, a map of Northern Virginia at the time of the Battle of First Manassas in July 21st, 1861. And so in the upper right corner, you can see where Washington, D.C. is, and then just outside of that, Alexandria. Uh, the Potomac River snakes down from the top center of the map down to the right side to the bottom right of the sheet, and spoking out from Alexandria is the uh, yeah the, the main road that leads out from Alexandria toward Manassas, and then the railroad that leads out from Alexandria toward manassas and in the center of it is Manassas Junction, where two railroads come together the, the one the railroad that comes out of d c and heads toward ultimately Charlottesville and the one that in the railroad that heads directly west from Manassas into the Shenandoah Valley. And so that's why Manassas, of course, is a strategically important location to hold because it's the main transportation line that connects uh, eastern Northern Virginia with the Shenandoah Valley. Mm-hmm. And, mm. and certainly in the, the, grand strat, the grand strategy of the Manassas campaign uh, relies on uh, Confederate reinforcements arriving from the Shenandoah Valley along that railroad Uh, to meet the existing Confederate garrison at Manassas to work together to repel the United States Army's assault on that point. And so in and around uh, Manassas Junction on the map, and you can see Bull Run Creek kind of snaking up just north and northwest of Manassas Junction on the map, the person who drew this kind of laid out all the various kind of troop dispositions. And you see... You see the names of commanders, and you see the little blocks that represents regiments or brigades. And so you see LZ and Longstreet and Sherman and Kirby Smith. Their names are all kind of written out on the map as well. And it's, it's a great massive confusion, of course, because the battle moves and uh, fluctuates over time. And uh, the United States Army kind of flanks around the left side of the map gets almost in the Confederate rear. The Confederates turn and push back, and you can kind of see all these movements laid out on this map, and they're pushing back and pushing back. And ultimately, the United States Army uh, formations break, and the United States Army has to retreat in many occasions in great haste uh, back to D.C. And so you see on the, the road line uh, between connecting Centerville and uh, just north of Manassas and Alexandria, is are kind of comic stick yeah, figures. Yeah, it was like cartoonish,
2: <laughs> like what you would see in like a 1950s flip cartoon. Yes,
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, with the with the long legs, the wavy arms, and they are making their way uh, with great haste back to. And it's obviously drawn with a great deal of hilarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these guys were laughing at. At the, uh, the the races and the uh, there's a little caption underneath the road that says I can't remember the exact mileage oh, but like it? 27. 27 mile race course you know mm-hmm. and above the stick figures is kind of a detailed cartoon drawing of an older portlier gentleman in a top hat riding a horse and the horse is his legs are all extended out uh, in front of him and behind him because he's running so fast as well and it's 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 really funny to look at. And at the bottom right corner of the of the sheet is in brown ink, uh, signed a testimony to the accuracy of this image, and then signed uh, PGT Beauregard, who, of course, was the Confederate commander at First Manassas, what becomes First Manassas. And it was uh, no date on that, but it's it's there in the corner. Beauregard stood in the presence of this, saw it, liked it, and signed it. Mm-hmm. And so...
2: so- I know a lot of people know a lot about the American Civil War and it's pretty, mm-hmm. you know, it's pretty general knowledge, I would even say. Mm-hmm. But what was the the big significance of this Manassas battle?
1: Okay. This... Mm.
2: It's a big question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so there had certainly been skirmishes and firefights between Confederate states and United States soldiers between Fort Sumter and in uh, April of 1861 and Manassas in July of 1861. But this was the first major battle between the two standing armies of the Civil War Mm -hmm. era. And certainly by the end of the war, kind of the size and scope of Manassas was dwarfed by some of the larger bloodier uh, fights, but it certainly represented Americans kind of first encounter with a major battle in the Civil War. And it was, uh, you know, a real eye-opener, uh, to, to say the least. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it proved uh, how disorganized the armies were. It proved, it, it certainly proved to the United States that the Confederate States was not going to simply give up at the appearance of, of government soldiers mm-hmm. at their doorstep. And Which
2: I'm sure is what they were hoping.
1: Certainly, yeah, certainly the, the general thinking in the spring and summer of 1861 is that we just have to march united states armies down and boot the secessionists out of their state capitals and then the loyal people of the south would rise up mm-hmm. and restore uh, the government in that section and first manassas was certainly you know I- exhibit a in saying no it's not going to be that way mm-hmm. <laughs> and so yeah. we're, we're going to have to work harder to do this. And so
2: didn't go as they had originally planned. It was right. gonna be a lot more complicated and and large effort to mm-hmm. to tame what was happening. Mm-hmm. And then it's represented very nicely by this map that they drew. But so the man who signed it at the bottom, right who was he and why was he important?
1: And so uh Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard was a native of uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. He was a uh, Creole descent. Uh, but he had been to the United States Military Academy at West Point and served in the regular U.S. Army uh, prior to the Civil War. And he was uh, he was a, a mid-ranking officer in the United States Army prior to the war and one of the highest-ranking officers to resign from the U.S. Army and join the Confederate States at his uh, earliest uh, moments of life. And so he was assigned to the garrison in Charleston, South Carolina, and was the Confederate commander at the Battle of Fort Sumter in April of 1861. And so he was uh, for uh, about a year the most popular within the Confederate States military commander that they had in the field. Mm -hmm. And after Fort Sumter, he was assigned to the after Fort Sumter and the secession of the Upper South States, he uh, and the consolidation of Confederate armies in the upper parts of the upper south states, he was assigned to the, the uh, primary Confederate army that was forming in Northern Virginia at the time. And oh, so okay. he was the, he was the uh, commander of the Confederate army at the Battle of First Manassas or First Bull Run.
2: And do you think when he saw it and he kind of signed the authenticity, like, oh, this is exactly how it looked, I mean, obviously, there was probably some bias there. He mm-hmm. probably particularly loved the look of them running and fleeing away looking cartoonish. Mm-hmm. But looking at it historically, do you think that it was pretty accurately done minus the artistic <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> flair?
1: Yeah, uh, certainly, uh, you know, in, in its representation of kind of the chaos of the battlefield, the advance and retreats of the United States Army and kind of the disposition of, of where the soldiers were. It's a stylized map, but it's accurate with, within that. Um, and that kind of makes you think about how uh, how military maps kind of take shape and the difference between kind of precise accuracy and kind of the stylization that's required to Absolutely. tell a truthful story. It, yeah. it definitely does the latter. <laughs> yeah, Definitely.
2: How did you guys come by this sheet? Like where, where did it come from?
1: So this, this gets into a little history of our institution. Um, is that the American Civil War Museum today is the result of a merger between two other institutions, two other museums. Okay. And the the, the first, the newest one, was the American Civil War Center that was founded here at Historic Tredegar in 2006. And it was intended to be a Civil War museum that told a larger story of the American Civil War in the heart of Civil War country. Mm-hmm. And the other museum was the, what, what was most recently called the Museum of the Confederacy, but mm-hmm. it started life in 1896 as the Confederate Museum. And it began in 1896 in the building uh, currently known as the White House of the Confederacy, which is up the hill from here, we're on the waterfront, but if you go up to the highest point in Richmond, or the, maybe the second highest point in Richmond, is the house that Jefferson Davis lived in. Uh, four st- I think it's a four-story house in one of the better neighborhoods, maybe a little run down in 1860, but one, certainly one of the better neighborhoods. It's the neighborhood that John Marshall had lived in, that all the wealthy industrialists in Richmond lived in, had the finest houses. And that building was built in the early 19th century. I don't remember exactly what year. Uh, served as the residence of the Davis family during the war. After the war, became a school for the city of Richmond and in the 1890s was assumed by the Confederate Memorial Literary Society, an an organization that was got up to kind of chronicle and document and memorialize the Confederate experience in Virginia. And they aspired to be a national museum. And so uh, through their own contacts and through their friends in the United Daughters of the Confederacy uh the ladies of the confederate memorial literary society were able to collect artifacts from across the former confederate states to bring into the museum and so the bulk of our collection these days and certainly robert can tell you more about our collection when you talk to him have get get him uh, to tell you the details in terms (laughs) of numbers (laughs) the bulk of our collection came to came to that museum in the uh, 1890s, 19 aughts, 1910s, 1920s, and were donated by the original users of the objects uh, and their descendants and friends. And then anyone else who had a Civil War artifact laying around they wanted to get rid of, they Mm -hmm. came into Mm -hmm. this museum. Definitely. And so so there's a tremendous collection. The, The Confederate Museum amassed a tremendous collection of objects re- related to the, the most prominent people in the Confederate experience, the Davis family, Robert E. Lee and, and them, uh, down to ordinary uh, common soldiers and uh, women on the home front are all uh, represented in this. And in the great bulk of things, uh, we, can, we can look at them, we can look at these objects and artifacts and kind of ask them new questions and think about uh, what they're telling us. And we can look back at what they collected and say, well, there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of objects in here, I think, that represent to some extent an African-American experience within the Confederate states or that represent, you know, sufferers on the home front as victims of Confederate policy rather than as sufferers on the home front who uh, sanctified the Confederate states by their suffering. Uh, you know, we can kind of slightly tweak and understand those stories from different angles. And so this object came to us in those years. So this, this object that, uh, that we're calling a bedsheet, this is large cotton sheet that with the map drawn on it, was donated in 1918. And the, the note that came with the donor said that it was presented by Dr. J.C. Knott, surgeon in charge of a temporary hospital. Okay, and that's not N-O-T-T. That, if you don't know anything about Southern history, particularly the Antebellum South.
2: Let's assume that I do not. Yes, uh,
1: that will <laughs> go right by you and say, oh yeah, some medical doctor who served in the Confederate. And that's what just happened, yes. Yeah. Okay. I was nodding my head like, um, oh yes, of course, the <laughs> not. yes. Um, but study uh, the Antebellum South and uh, particularly slavery and pro-slavery uh, justifications uh, or pro-slavery rhetoric and all of a sudden, oh, Dr. J.C. Nott, I've heard that name before, he's kind of important. So. Doctor Not is Josiah C. Knot, um, was uh, initially from Charleston, South Carolina, but uh, moved to uh, Mobile, Alabama, and made a name for himself there. And he made a name for himself as, as many uh, Southern medical doctors did in the antebellum period, as as uh, a specialist in tropical diseases. He could he could treat malaria. He could treat. Um, all of the all of the things that troubled Southerners in the hotter climes, you mm-hmm, know, that mm-hmm. um, that the, they didn't think really bothered people north of the Mason Dixon line. Um, and as a and and he was nationally famous for someone who knew how to deal with what they called tropical diseases, and he was also nationally famous for for his thinking about the medical condition of enslaved African Americans. Uh, prior to the war and he not only thought medically but he thought anthropologically about black people and he published his thoughts and he uh, he came to several uh, conclusions that sound sort of odd to us today. So he developed this idea of drapetomania huh. which what he described it as it's a predilection that black people have to run away. Oh, predilection,
2: oh my word. It's a
1: disease that causes black people to run away. And oh,
2: scientific opinion. Yes. That's, and he is, was a practicing uh, doctor, yeah. this is great news. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and uh, that may have been, uh, if, if, if what I know is correct, that may have been kind of a, a, a way to help owners uh, make insurance claims. On runaway slaves, like say, this was oh. a this, this was a medical problem that my the the person I was enslaving had, mm-hmm. and so it wasn't anything I did.
2: <laughs> Real convenient,
1: um, yeah. So, Knott was uh, in his anthropological studies of the races at the time uh, was known for being one of the lead thinkers on the idea of polygenesis, so polymany genesis origin. So, and what that means is is that he looked at anthropology and said that people of African descent and people of European descent are descended from separate beings, Okay. separate species. These are separate species. Mm-hmm. Um, and naturally, of course, that justifies the oh, enslavement. It made it a lot easier <laughs> yeah. for them. Yeah, and this was not, this was a, a remarkably uh, controversial opinion at the time. And, and because, this, because he was, this was part of the debate that had been ongoing in the 19th century but was really crystallized by uh, Darwin and his, uh, his theories of evolution and the descent of man um, about the origins of humanity from that way and that in kind of Darwin's theses kind of explained how uh, people of uh, European descent, people of African descent may have come from a similar point of origin. Uh, and it was also uh, controversial uh, amongst uh, religi- in religious circles, in evangelical circles, and uh, in which they their scientific text, of course, was the Bible and the Bible is Adam and Eve and everyone descends from Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. And so uh, pro-slavery evangelical Christians argued with not over these theories, but certainly uh, he was well known uh, for uh, promulgating these theories. And so Naturally, of course, uh, you would think someone who maintains uh, one of the more extreme pro-slavery positions of polygenesis, uh, he is enthusiastic about the secession and creation of the Confederate states. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So um, I'm going to do some math here. So in 1861, at the time of First Manassas, Knott uh, is 57 years old. So he is uh, too old, uh, one way or another, by statute or and probably by his physical abilities to join the army. Mm-hmm. Um, but... He is so enthusiastic about the outbreak of war that he makes his way on his own to uh, Northern Virginia, where uh, PGT Bogard's Army of Virginia was uh, stationed. And he everyone knew this battle was coming and he made it his mission to be there when it happened. Um, Certainly, he stopped in Richmond and visited Alabama troops and visited his sons, I believe, who were in the Army at the time. Uh, But he got to the field. Um, and he, on the day of the battle, he accompanied uh, Beauregard's staff around the field. and he kind of went back and forth between watching what the generals were doing and treating wounded soldiers on the field. And so he was he kept himself busy that day um, And when the battle was over, of course, there is a little kind of expectation that... Uh, either of these armies are going to need to uh, triage, care for uh, thousands and thousands of wounded soldiers. And so it's, it's uh, it's to to say the medical aftermath is uh, a bit chaotic is a bit of an understatement. Mm -hmm. Um, But temporary hospitals were set up and uh, in Every place between Richmond and Northern Virginia, and so that includes uh, railroad, you know, Richmond, but also railroad depots like Gordonsville and Orange Courthouse, and and in Charlottesville, Virginia. And so if you uh, if you follow the kind of the spokes of the railroads on the map further out, they're all going to connect um, just north of the James River, where there's uh, railroad transportation as well, and and di- uh, different hospitals are set up in makeshift facilities, usually warehouses. Uh, people's homes. Sometimes hospitals organized themselves around kind of what state the soldiers they were serving were from. And so there was an Alabama hospital in Gordonsville. Uh, There was an Alabama hospital in Richmond. And so Josiah Knott spent the next several months uh, kind of tending to Alabama soldiers at hospitals between Richmond and uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, including Gordonsville.
2: Why specifically Alabama?
1: Uh, 'Cause that's where he was from. He identified with uh Alabama soldiers. Oh, okay. And certainly there were hospitals for North Carolina troops and hospitals for Virginia troops. And uh and that system kind of maintained itself a little bit over as the as the uh, medical uh infrastructure matured, but uh it largely broke down into kind of major kind of uh general hospitals mm-hmm. in at in, in various places in Richmond where just all the soldiers came in. And so did Josiah not um, draw this map? I I don't know. No one knows. Um, it's uh, from the language of the donor. It would seem that he may have gotten it from a wounded soldier in one of these hospitals that he was at uh, between July and September of 1861. But it's just not entirely clear from the language of the donation mm-hmm. if if that was something that he made or he just got from someone. Uh, Certainly, he had it that summer because Beauregard was there to sign it Mm -hmm. uh, for him because in September, he left Virginia and he went back to Mobile, Alabama. And he his main project was to uh, was to raise money for Alabama soldiers in hospitals. And and he he did that by uh, by delivering kind of his personal history of the Battle of Manassas uh, to an audience in Mobile, Alabama. And so you kind of pay to get in and then he forwards all the proceeds to the hospitals and he proceeded this by writing uh, a very florid letter about the uh, about the battle that papers all over not only the Confederate states but some papers in the, in the United States, including the New York Times, republished his letter about it because he was a well enough known individual that, like, hey, we know that guy, uh, Josiah Knott, let's, he, and here's an interesting letter from his view on what happened, mm-hmm. and we're in New York Times, we, we're the New York Times, but we'll still publish it, it's noteworthy that he has something to say, um, and, and then he delivered a lecture on the Battle of uh, Manassas in September of 1861 at the, uh, the Oddfellows Hall in uh, Mobile, Alabama. Um, Now the question is, uh, did he, if he made this map, did he make it for this lecture? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Did he display this at this lecture? I like to think he did. There's no evidence one way or another uh, because his lecture probably follows his lengthy letter to the newspapers, but otherwise uh, we don't have any description of At this point of what the lecture hall how it was bedecked with Mm -hmm. uh you know decorations and whatnot Um, i like to think that he did tack it up to a board and use it as part of his as part of his demonstration uh and i can only tell that he only ever gave this lecture at at one point uh shortly after uh, he settled down a little bit and uh and uh, assumed duties of a hospital administrator for the Confederate military and navy in Mobile, Alabama and served in that capacity until uh, the end of the war. Wow. After the war, he moved to New York City. What?
2: didn't see that coming (laughs) surprise Um, ending
1: (laughs) well uh, it's even worse he moved to new york city because he was interested in pursuing a career in gynecology
2: oh (laughs) lord have mercy we don't have
1: to get into that let's not that's 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 not going to end well for anyone
2: (laughs) that's a whole new catastrophe (laughs) (laughs) so amazing backstory to a map on a sheet that Mm -hmm. was really interesting And then, so we have the sheet, and then we also have you wanted to talk about the Greenbacks exhibit, correct?
1: Greenback America.
2: Greenback America. Right. So, when when um, I read that in the email, I'm gonna be real with you, I had no idea sure. <laughs> what that meant. Sure. All right. Now I know, but uh, let's just pretend like I still have no idea okay. what's your Greenback exhibit.
1: But you know what a Greenback is, right?
2: I didn't. I didn't what? until I read that, <laughs> and then I looked it up. And just, all right. Okay. Everyone stop judging me for a second. I can't know everything. <laughs>
1: okay. All right, here, here, here's what we'll do. Okay, this is for you or for anyone who's listening. Go into your,
0: <laughs> sorry,
1: my high school Velcro wallet. Makes so much noise. Uh, go in your wallet and get out a dollar bill. Okay. Okay. Um, and what you're holding in your hand is the modern version of what we call a greenback. Um, it's, what makes it a greenback? Um, the
2: back is green?
1: That's that's <laughs> sort of one way of describing it. Um, this is an artifact of the Civil War. Really? Um, and the best part of the, this artifact is, if you look on the most boring part of it, you'll see a line that says, this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. That specifically is what makes this a Civil War artifact. Um, so everyone, maybe, I don't know, certainly in... You know, if I asked you to get your wallet out in 1980, it would be different, but you know, we're all using debit cards now, but. This is um, true. Right, everyone who has cash on them has an artifact of the Civil War on them. And it's uh, not only this money made by the United States government, but this promise that's in the legal tender notice that this is worth something, okay? And that's the thing here. It's just a promise that it's worth something. Okay. Um, Okay, so I'm gonna leave you hanging there. and we're gonna get back around to the the larger story. All right, so um, the, uh, I'm gonna put my noisy wallet away real quick.
2: Your Velcro wallet, get with the times. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, Okay, so uh, what we're looking at in Greenback America is is the idea that, um, is that the United States that was restored and preserved and or preserved in 1865 was a different nation from the one that broke apart in 1860 and 1861. Okay. Um, And what does that mean? That means that because of the war, things changed. And because of the need to pay for the war, because of the opportunity of pro-slavery congressmen and senators being absent from Congress, uh, Congress was able to initiate and enact a bunch of different policies favored by the Republican Party um, these all produced uh, changes in the, the very nature of the federal government and, the idea of, and in the idea of federalism in general, about who decides many of these things about the future of this country and what policies are we going to do to develop the future of this nation. Um, and some of these uh, derive specifically from contingency from the need to make quick decisions to solve a problem that have unintended outcomes because of the war. Okay, so what's the situation with money prior to uh, the Civil War? So money, paper bills are issued by banks, private banks. And so there are hundreds if not thousands of private banks uh, across the United States and they are all as a very disjointed unregulated group, uh, basically responsible for monetary policy. How much money is in circulation? How much m- cash is there on hand? What happens if banks call in debts? That has a great effect on the economy. What happens when, uh, uh, if banks decide to issue a whole lot of money? Uh, you know, that triggers inflation. You know, banks have a lot of power, and part of the problem with banks is that some banks are really good. Uh, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, and New Orleans have very good banks. If I'm in Kentucky and I get a banknote, a paper money bill from a bank in New Orleans or a bank in Philadelphia, I'm like, I can take this down to the general store and they're going, to, they're going to trust that this bill is worth what it says it is. So if this is a $10 bill, they know that they can return it to that original bank and get redeemed that amount in gold that's the key here, mm-hmm. is that the theory is that, is that all the money that you have, that bank has that amount of gold in their safes. But there's also a lot of banks that you can't trust. Um, and there's no regulation. There's some state regulation. Louisiana and, and and Pennsylvania have very good state regulations. So you can trust banks. From this. But banks in Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, who knows what's going on with those banks? So if I'm in... Uh, North Carolina, and I get uh, something issued on the Bank of Toledo, Ohio, and, you know, if I'm in Fayetteville, North Carolina, I'm going, I have never heard of these people? I don't even know if this is a real bill. Do they even have gold in there? We don't know because mm-hmm. we don't, they don't have a reputation like the, you know, the banks in New York have. I don't know. And so, and so, you know, the the person who's being presented with this money is, it, with this bill can say, well, i tell you what, this is, this says $10, but uh, you can get a dollar's worth of goods off of this. So it deflates the value of the money. Mm-hmm. So this is all over the place and it's very, it slows down the economy. It's very chaotic. Um, sorry, you're- you Well,
2: I was going to ask, do, so then all of these bills must not look the same?
1: No, no, no. Each bank has their own money. And they, 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 they all have a similar pattern. They all kind of they all, they all purchase their, their individual banknotes from like the American Banknote Company out of Philadelphia, and so and they're all using the same kind of symbols, whether it's you know trains or Liberty with a Liberty cap, okay, label la- yeah, Liberty yeah. with a Liberty cap on it, or the, you know the, the, they all look like money, um, but it's all very disorganized and it all slows things down. Okay, and it's all controlled by banks and not the government. So uh, what happens when the war breaks out? they very quickly figure out that by the end of 1861 the United States estimates that this is um, the uh, United States war planners in the Lincoln administration uh, figure that this war is going to cost $250 million a day. And that, that is everything from uh, paying government contracts to people who are making uniform parts to paying soldiers themselves to buying the lumber and the nails and the tents and the guns and everything and so um it you know this is going to cost a lot of money the united states government does not have that kind of money laying around now how does the united states traditionally raise money for wars Uh, they borrow it they borrow it from banks by selling bonds and uh, ultimately uh, the united states does uh, finance the war through bond sales chiefly but that's a time-consuming process the uh, United States government is not going to tax that much money because taxing then is just as unpopular as it is now. The, the United States government is not going to confiscate property or goods to finance this thing. Uh, ultimately, the Confederate States actually does that. And, and so their alternative is to say, well, we will just make money. All right? Now, it's not unheard of, the idea that you can make money, but everyone said, uh, well, if you start making money, Uh, First of all, you don't have the gold to back it up. And second of all, that's going to create so much inflation, it's going to destroy the economy, because we're just putting $250 million of straight cash unbacked by gold into the economy. All prices are going to go up, um, and no one's going to be able to afford anything, and and it's going to be a disaster. But they decided that's the least worst option that they have, because what happens is in December of 1861, banks who are responsible for loaning the government money or issuing money, say we don't believe that the government is going to be able to pay us back. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have lost faith in the government's ability to prevail in this war, and and so that's the crisis point. Is 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 the banks say we can't loan you any more money, and you know the administration says well we have to have money, so the least worst option is to make money, mm-hmm. and the key here is that of course is that. In the old system, the theory is that if you have a bank note from a bank, you can redeem that for gold. Um, they're not even going to pretend here. They're going to say, we don't have this gold, but see these little words on here? This n- note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. This has value because we say it has value. And that's of course where the, where the name comes from. It's backed by, not gold, but just the, the green ink on the back of it, um, okay. on the back in front of it. So it's just backed by green, just green backs. And so uh, the United States government ended up making millions of dollars of bank notes. But along with that, the United States government instituted some serious banking reforms and kind of national, to an extent national, I'm probably using incorrect terms here, but kind of didn't nationalize banks, but uh, looped banks into a national system of monetary policy by chartering banks. And so prior to this, you have private banks and they do what they want to do. When it's all over, there's two bank acts, but when it's all over, um, if banks want to operate, uh, they have to get a charter from Congress and they have to have purchased a certain amount of United States bonds uh, to keep, to kind of back up their Mm -hmm. operation, that there's value to their operation. And, And if you chose not to get a charter and not to purchase bonds, then Congress says, we're going to tax you out. Basically, we're going to tax you out of existence. Um, and so, and, and so th- th- this is, this is kind of like when you walk around, and you see first national bank, second national bank. That means that's the, the first bank in your town that got a charter from Congress okay. to operate this. And so that kind of creates a national monetary system. And to some degree, it puts the control of monetary policy of the United States in the hands of Congress. Um, there, there's still some banks because banks still uh, greenbacks for treasury notes. Banks still issue bank notes, so there is some competition. But Congress enters the game of who controls the economy. And if you ever sat in uh, you know your American history two class and and wondered why why is monetary policy and gold standard and greenback party and in, in the in the Gilded Age such a such a such an important topic. It's like I don't—I never understood that um, until this, when I realized that um, who controls the economy at this point, uh, it, you know, in a very volatile economy that has traumatic depressions every 10 years, um, who controls it at this point? It's—it's uh, it's a battle between banks and Congress over who controls it, and at times banks have the upper hand, at times Congress has the upper hand, and we, you know. American citizens have a stay, in, have a say in that because they're electing Congress, so it's an electoral issue. All right, we don't have electoral issues over monetary policy now because in 1913 the Federal Reserve was created and they assumed all that. Okay, that's a different story. Um, so what's happening here is that is that because of the war, because of the need to uh, have solid money to have a way to pay for the war that they didn't, they knew it wasn't gonna be easy, but I think it was gonna be $250 million, uh, $2,500,000 a day easy. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, It creates kind of a new system in a, in a more centralized, I, I can't say it was predictable, but a, a, more, a, a national system of how the United States government manages the economy and sees the economy and understands the economy and realizing that Congress can do things to adjust Uh, kind of the economic fortunes of, I don't know, maybe bankers, maybe railroaders, maybe farmers um, over the subsequent years after the war. And so this isn't the only way that uh, the war kind of changed the United States government um, in the way the United States nation kind of embodied itself during the war and particularly after the war. Uh, There's certainly things like the Pacific Railroad Act, um, the Homestead Act. Uh, you know, this this suite of congressional policies that were passed that really kind of established the Republican free labor vision and pro-industry vision for kind of the future of the nation uh, was established in these years by kind of this contingent moment in which they had to act to do something and their pro-slavery counterparts weren't here to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, these Confederates who left in 1861 returned in 1865, and they, they kind of maybe expected, okay, we 're going to just go back to normal."
2: and pick up where we left off. Pick up where
1: we left off, and, and they, they look around, and you, know, whether it's you know, economic policy or, or settlement policy for you know, dis- displacing Native Americans or the, uh, you know, the policies regarding what freedom, what citizenship, what enfranchisement means for black people, it's an entirely different nation that they've come back to and they have a hard time dealing with that. But that's, that, again, that's a different story. But Greenback America, as we walk through this decision-making process, and we see that this isn't just a – kind of, we encounter places where this isn't just a matter of kind of dry politics, but we see the ways that Americans kind of make meaning out of that dry politics. And they say that, you know, some Americans are extremely skeptical of Greenback's, and they say this is a symptom of everything that's wrong with the Lincoln administration. Um, or they look at greenbacks and say that you cannot get any more patriotic than this. It's like if you want to save the union, you get yourself into the greenback market and uh, you know, trust in this money that otherwise isn't telling, giving you any reason to trust it. Uh, you have to trust it because the nation depends on it. It's patriotic. Certainly African Americans look at it and say this is the money that used to finance the war that ultimately led to my freedom. Of course, I love this money uh, and I'm going to use it. I'm going to be proud of it and I'm going to engage with it. Um, And certainly kind of even in this exhibit, you'll see place. You'll see places where where people kind of have a lot of fun with the idea of money because man, Americans during the Civil War are just jokers (laughs) and punsters and they would be great meme makers today, they were hilarious all the time. And so the poems and the songs in ways that they kind of described this kind of heady, effervescent uh, kind of political culture of the United States in the 1860s, uh, you know, whether they're talking about emancipation or they're talking about greenbacks and monetary policy, they are having fun with that. And that's how they make meaning out of it. So it's, uh, you know, we, we can take these dry topics of monetary policy and see that, no, here's how, here's how and why this means so much to Americans and what that meaning, where they liked it or they didn't like it, uh, kind of really uh, gave meaning to the entire experience of the war, the entire experience of the Union, um, the experience of emancipation, and the experience of the future of this nation. That, that, that's being generated and encountered uh, during the Civil War.
2: And I think you can really feel it when you walk into that exhibit space because you first walk in and you see like a river of money flowing above your head and you see all these bright green colors. And so it's not really just like this boring topic in history of, oh, well, you didn't know if you could trust the government or not with our money. But -hmm. you go into the space and it's really, really fun. And there's cartoons everywhere. And Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, Yeah. you guys did a really good job with it.
1: And and it takes us up to 1913. Um, And and, in that way, I hope that we can show that, that, you know, the, the, the impact of the civil, we could talk about the Civil War and its impact and, and kind of the meaning making that it has uh, well beyond 1861 to 1865 or 61 to 76 and say that th- th- this thing is a, a thing that just really reshaped American life for so much longer than that. Um, and I'm glad you said River of Money because that's actually the name of that feature.
2: Oh, <laughs> look at that! You, did not, you had no idea. <laughs> I think that just obviously goes to show you guys designed it perfectly because I just it worked. <laughs> <you> <laughs> worked out
0: perfect. Yeah,
1: yeah. Because um, Mike Karras was our uh, was our postdoctoral fellow who worked, who did the research for this exhibit, and he always likes to point out that uh, money doesn't mean anything unless it's moving. Um, you know, you can put a. dollar bill in my wallet and as long as that sits there it's just a piece of paper in my wallet but when I you know drive home and you know grab a can of beer on the way you know all of a sudden that creates value Mm -hmm. in the system Mm -hmm. and so money moving around the nation whether it's from you know private bank to private bank or in and out of a federal reserve system is is where it matters and so we wanted to kind of demonstrate the a flow of money and so we just started calling out the river of money. <laughs>
2: well it works perfect. <laughs> well thank you so so much. Right. This was this was really fun and I really enjoyed how you yeah. talked about like you made a map really, really fun and the story behind it was incredible. Good. And then the story of, of greenback money which yeah like i said i didn't know what it was and then when i learned what it was, I was right.
1: like oh let's see what
2: this guy's got to say about this it was awesome
1: <laughs> great great well thank th- you. yeah
0: thank you so much for being on the podcast with us yeah.
1: well i can't wait for you to talk to robert Nana?? as well